You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Are you muted? I was. Sorry. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we are talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today, as always, are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello from Nashville, where it is way too hot to be fall. 80 degrees is not okay in late October. And I'll say hello from me, and given my typical half-glass-full disposition, I am thankful for the the warm weather that we are having here. Your glass is Nashville. half full if it's warm. If it was cold outside, you'd be like, ah, it's the end of the world. Well, that's fine. I mean, when the end of the world comes, it's going to be because, you know, we're freezing. So I think that every week now, the intro to the podcast is turning into people trying to understand how Brent loves Christmas music and Christmas and hates winter and cold. Stay tuned yeah, for more on exactly. this. Exactly. Because I don't like story. death because. Because death is terrible, and that's what winter signifies. Good grief. Yes. Man, there's some Narnian themes going on there. Always winter, (laughs) never Christmas. So anyway, so we can get into the show. Later in the show, we're excited to talk to a special guest, uh, Jennifer Marshall-Patterson, who has been a friend and partner with the ERLC for many years. And we're excited to talk to her, but Lindsay, so that we can get into the podcast and off of Christmas. Tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Well, I don't necessarily want to get off of the topic of Christmas, but since we don't have any Christmas pieces yet, then I will. So we've got a lot of great content at ERLC.com this week. And these three that I'm going to talk about are just a little taste of what we're featuring. So the first is by Benjamin Quinn, and it's another addition to our primer series where we're highlighting books that are pivotal in helping us understand different aspects and issues when it comes to Christian ethics. Dr. Quinn's piece is, How Does My Faith in Jesus Connect With My Work Life? Every kind of work is a sacred calling. And I thought this was really good because, honestly, work doesn't always feel sacred, (laughs) and work doesn't always feel like a gift. And I have talked to people who are not in vocational ministry, per se, and they feel like they're not doing enough with their lives to serve the Lord, which is could not be further from the truth. So I appreciated uh, Benjamin Quinn's take here. He was sharing uh, from the book by Gene E. Veith, and it's called God at Work. And he just he just extols this book and says just how pivotal it's been for him and how easy it is to read and just how helpful it was. So one of his quotes was this, The doctrine of vocation, though it has to do with human work, is essentially about God's work and how God works in and through our lives. And so I thought that was a helpful take because we get too focused on ourselves and what we're doing when really we should be focused on the Lord and looking at how He's at work in us and those around us. Yeah, I was actually the one that uh, solicited this piece. Uh, I've taken classes with Dr. Quinn at Southeastern, and he is just incredible, and he has really important things to say on the subject of faith and work. And if you're not familiar with the work of Gene Veith, like this is a really great introduction to a critical uh, thinker in this area that is also just very accessible. And so I couldn't commend this article or this book any more strongly. Josh, was that a humble brag? Did you need to let our listeners know that you— uh I was actually just trying to show my particular connection to the piece, but sure, if it was a humble (laughs) brag. I'm glad I know Benjamin Quinn. He's a real boss, and uh, he's actually an Augustine scholar, and 
that is what I've learned from him the most. But in any case, uh, sorry for the humble brag. No, it's okay. So we also wanted to highlight that this month is Pastor Appreciation Month, and our pastors have walked through a particularly hard time this uh, this season with COVID, of course, and just all the decisions that that they are facing. So our former intern, Isaac Whitney, wrote a piece just thanking publicly his pastor for the work that he's done, for how he served his church. And of course, this could apply to so many pastors across the board. And it's called Why I'm Thankful for My Pastor's Leadership During COVID. And we actually, uh, some of us know his pastor. His name's Raymond Johnson in Pennsylvania. And I just thought it was such a thoughtful piece. Um, I hope that it encourages other pastors to know that their work is not uh, going unseen. I hope it encourages us as readers and as lay people at the church to make sure that we are vocally thanking our pastors for the hard work that we're doing, even when we disagree, because of course we're sinners, we're humans, we're going to disagree with one another. But even in the midst of those disagreements, um, Paul tells us that it's our job to to respect those who are input in leadership and to esteem them because of their work. Uh, that they're doing on our behalf. So we were really thankful for this piece and want to encourage you to go tell your pastors thank you. Yeah, this look, this has been a, a season of of stress uh, in all parts of society, but particularly on our churches uh, and and pastors just trying to navigate folks that are isolated and distanced and then gathering us back together. This is certainly a time to express appreciation for our pastors that in normal times have a role to play uh, that is unimaginably difficult at times. And I I can't even appreciate uh, how difficult it's been for my own pastor. And so we should take uh, a moment to uh, express our appreciation and thanks for what they do. Yes, which is convicting because I have yet to do that this month. Uh, and it shouldn't just take me a particular month to do that. I need to uh, apply this, what we are running on ERLC. And finally, we want to highlight with just a little over a week left until our election here in the U.S., we felt as an organization it's important to highlight civility, which is essentially as our president here at the ERLC, Russell Moore, says is convictional kindness. Treating other people with kindness in the public square, treating our neighbors with kindness, treating them with respect, treating them with the dignity that they deserve. So we've put together a civility toolkit, which will actually be linked to in this article. But our friend Daryl Crouch was really instrumental in putting this together, and we have shared an excerpt from it, and it's titled, How Do We Live for the Kingdom in This Contentious Moment? And what Daryl does here is he takes a passage from Dr. Moore's book, Onward, and he just reminds us that as Christians, we are we're citizens of this world, but ultimately our highest allegiance is as citizens of Jesus's kingdom, that we have a king that we're looking to who lays out for us and empowers us to live the way that he has designed. And actually, it's a way that's designed for human flourishing. And so it's just an encouragement to not get caught up in all of the hateful partisan politics that are happening currently in our culture, but instead to live as those who are different, who have a different kingdom that we're looking forward to, who have a different calling, who have a different king, and to point those around us to that king, because we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. 
Yeah, you know what's so great about this piece, Lindsay, is the fact that Daryl is not just some kind of uh, political prognosticator. He's not some person sitting on the sidelines. He's a local church pastor who is thinking through how to lead his church to embody Christ-likeness. Uh, and, in, and in this case, how we're talking about uh, how to, in the middle of a polarized and contentious time, to be this salt and light that Jesus calls us to be. And so uh, that, that for me, is why his voice is so important. And he was, as you mentioned, instrumental. Uh, he's the really the creative force behind the church civility toolkit that we have uh, created. And so anyway, really grateful for Daryl and for this piece, because these are things that Christians need to be thinking about right now. Yeah. In your words, Josh, that's exactly right. I totally agree with you. Daryl is is the one to write this because he is he is the real deal and he is there living this out in the midst of his community in some encouraging ways. So that's just a little smattering of the things that we have going on at ERLC.com. We have some videos, we have some podcasts, we have other articles there that we're featuring. Uh, but we wanted to make you particularly aware of those three. Wanna encourage you to check out our site. That's your look at what's happening at ERLC.com. Hey, thanks so much for that rundown, Lindsay. And Brent, that takes us to you in the culture section. So tell us what's going on. That's right. It was a it was another fast-paced week in culture. Uh, so let's start with something that actually took place after we recorded this. So we are we are speaking into the future in a sense. So uh the final debate took place on Thursday night after we recorded this between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. We are going to link to uh, kind of an explainer uh, what to look for from the Wall Street Journal, but you'll get to see if what they told us to look out for actually happened. So the debate will likely be the last time that these two men will appear before such a large audience of American television viewers during the campaign, writes the, the Wall Street Journal. Millions of people have already cast their ballots and others are preparing to vote in person or by mail. Uh, both uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden will meet here in Nashville, or because we're recording this and releasing it afterwards, <laughs> they met in Nashville at Belmont University. And this is the second time that Belmont has hosted a presidential debate. Uh, some folks may remember that back in 2008, they hosted the debate between uh, President Obama and uh, former U.S. Senator John McCain. So there's a little bit of presidential trivia, which I, I know our audience is always tuning in for uh, here at the ERLC podcast. I can say this. I've seen the pictures, and it looks gorgeous. At least the outside of Belmont does. It's definitely a beautiful location for a debate. That's right. Let's hope that it's a beautiful debate. It'll be a beautiful, it'll be a tremendous debate. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel pretty like I'm standing on safe ground to say this. There's nowhere to go but up. So I think, you know, my expectations are for a slightly better uh, outcome than we saw the last time. We shall see. So you, yeah, you're, yeah. you're on the oh, record Josh. raising expectations <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. in this. Your I'm just following the glass half full <laughs> perspective that you, that you told us to embrace at the beginning. That's right. And after this podcast drops, we will be one day closer to Christmas, which is another way of looking uh, with a glass half full perspective. It will also be cooler outside. 
this weekend. Well, there you go. There you go. Lindsay, see, we're, we're all just coming together here on the RLC podcast. All right, so moving on from there to a report from the Washington Post. So early voting counts suggest a record level of civic participation before Election Day. The tens of millions of ballots already cast show highly enthusiastic voters are making sure their votes are counted amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. Voting before Election Day has been expanded this year because of the coronavirus, an option that more than 60% of registered voters want, according to a Washington Post University of Maryland poll from September. More voters than ever can vote by mail this election. While some Western states have long conducted their elections by mail, others, such as New Hampshire, are allowing voters to cast ballots by mail for the first time. So as we went on air, I went and looked. We are now up to uh, approximately 43 million votes being cast in this election already during this, this early voting period. That is an astronomical number that we've never seen before. We're seeing so many people come out during early voting and not just like during early voting, but at the very beginning of this process to go ahead and make sure that their vote gets counted. I was having a conversation with a friend this week and, it, and I was just reflecting on how interesting it is that so many of us have different like election day traditions. Like I'm traditionally like an early voter, uh, but but he was talking about how he always votes on election day because he likes to be a part of, he just likes that feeling on the day that the election is happening to be there at the polls and to be able to cast that ballot. Uh, obviously so many people this year are going to vote by mail and it is going to be, I mean, it's just something to watch because in all kinds of ways, we're seeing history happen right now. Well, with all this discussion about voting, man, it would be, it'd be really helpful if we could actually talk to a voting official, uh, a person who's actually responsible for carrying out an election. This is a little teaser for next week. Huh? Get excited. Is anybody else excited? I'm excited. I'm excited, bro. Okay, thank you. I'll be All here right. for you. Well, yeah, so just a little teaser. So next week on the RLC podcast, we will be uh, interviewing Tennessee's Secretary of State, Trey Hargett, uh, who is uh, he's, he's a phenomenal person. Uh, he's a strong believer, and we thought it would make sense uh, to, to maybe pose some of these questions about voting uh, to someone who is actually in charge of, of conducting an election. So stay tuned for that next week. All right, moving on. Uh, ACB. Uh, so the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett moves on uh, Thursday of this week uh, after a relatively low-key confirmation hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation took the next step, the next procedural step, with a vote to advance her nomination to the floor of the full Senate. The nomination received a 12-0 to 0 vote out of the committee. The 12 to 0, now you might be remembering, wait, there's there's more senators than that, that that serve on the Judiciary Committee. Well, you'd be right. Unfortunately, it was only Republicans uh, who were voting on the record uh, to proceed with her confirmation vote. Democrats did not participate uh, in, in the vote. Uh, so we will be linking to a Baptist press story on this development. And right now, it looks like uh, leader Mitch McConnell uh, will be filing for cloture on this nomination, and there will be a full confirmation vote on Judge Barrett uh, early next week. Just for those who might not know, what is cloture? Essentially, it means uh, it is the procedural move to cut off debate. There you go. There you go. 
It could be called closure, but instead it's called cloture, just to be confusing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and just so you could provide us with that little, little snarky comment towards legislative uh, procedural votes. Well, Lindsay, interestingly enough, real-time fact check, it actually does come from the old French word that means closure. So (gasps) you're just, your intuition is spot on. Just natural intuition. That's right. And now now. we have, now we have closure on this portion of the podcast. All right. So this, this next, (laughs) this next story is, is a, a tad more serious. CNN is reporting on a, um, Uh, A hastily arranged news conference that took place midweek. Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe said Wednesday both Iran and Russia have obtained U.S. voter registration information in an effort to interfere in the election, including Iran posing as the far-right group Proud Boys to send intimidating emails to voters. Ratcliffe appeared alongside FBI Director Chris Wray, uh, said that Iran was responsible for the email campaign, uh, made it to look like it came from the Proud Boys, and uh, was spreading disinformation about voter fraud through a video linked in some of the emails. Quote from Radcliffe says this, this data can be used by foreign actors to attempt to communicate false information to registered voters that they hope will cause confusion, sow chaos, and undermine your confidence in American democracy. So uh, once again, we've got a, a presidential election uh, that that seems to have outside foreign actors attempting to uh, manipulate or, or, or provide some sort of uh, chaotic element uh, here at the end of, of voting. This is this is certainly a concerning uh, development. I'm reading uh, spy novels right now, and it sounds like something that would come out of a novel. And it's truly unbelievable that it, it's it's real life. It's that this kind of thing really happens. It does, and uh, I, I am thankful that we've got uh, leaders and dedicated folks in the law enforcement arena that are constantly being vigilant uh, for this sort of uh, manipulation in our elections. So we we do want to make sure that every American has confidence uh, in this system and that it will produce a uh, a winner uh, in this in this election. All right, so now moving over to the uh, coronavirus front. this was a this was a, a news report that we talked about around kind of uh, the office, so to speak. COVID stress on marriage. Washington Post is reporting a major new survey of American families, the American Family Survey, found that 34% of married men and women ages 18 to 55 report the pandemic has increased stress in their marriage. I mean, look, that seems to be, you know, logically follows when we're all talking about how stressful these times are. Most married people in America report their unions, though, have gotten stronger, not weaker, in the wake of COVID-19. The survey found that 58% of married men and women, 18 to 55, said the pandemic has made them appreciate their spouse more, while 51% said their commitment to marriage had deepened. Only 8% said that the pandemic had weakened their commitment to one another. So, in spite of breathless media reports of a surge, uh, divorce actually appears to be down. 
Uh, it looks at initial data from five different states showing that that finding. Uh, so I, I was really heartened and encouraged by this report. That is really encouraging news. You know, one of my favorite things, I think I've mentioned this uh, maybe in our COVID six-month recap episode, about uh, the quarantine and stay-at-home orders and all that is actually having my husband at home all the time. And I realize it's a unique time in um, our season of life when he's going to be able to be here at home. But it's been a blast. And I do wonder if some of this, uh, these statistics and some of the ways people are responding is because they are together more. So they're getting to know one another again. They're spending time together again. Whereas before in the rat race of life, people were going their own ways a lot of times, living separate lives and not knowing what's going on in each other's minds and hearts and on each other's schedules. So I love this report, Brent. I hope it continues past COVID, but it's really, really good news in the midst of a hard news season. So yes, Lindsay, completely uh, agree that this uh, this data is very encouraging for marriage. And like you, I, I hope that it uh, continues well past this pandemic season. While we are on the topic of marriage, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the development that seemingly, to me, just kind of came out of left field this week uh, from the Vatican. So Pope Francis decided to weigh in on same-sex civil unions. Baptist Press is reporting that in response to Pope Francis's endorsement of same-sex civil unions for the first time as Pope, Southern Baptist leaders reiterated their commitment to the authority of the Bible's teaching regarding sexuality and marriage. Pope Francis's endorsement came while being interviewed in the documentary Francesco, which premiered Wednesday at the Rome Film Festival. Here's the quote from the, the Pope. Quote, homosexual people have the right to be in a family. They are children of God, Francis said in an interview, as reported by the Associated Press. Picking up the quote from there, you can't kick someone out of a family nor make their life miserable for this. What we have to have is a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. This went around the internet and, and certainly was uh, was talked about in in Christian circles, and uh, I, my sense was the thing that struck me is where where does your kind of average Catholic believer wrestle with this? On the one hand, you've got the authoritative uh, word of God, and and where this is very plainly spelled out as marriage is between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship, and then on the other hand, now you have the Pope saying something that that really undermines that. Uh, what what do y'all think? Well, I, I really like what Dr. Moore said in response to this. He he said uh, he opened his comments by saying, "I'm not sure how to understand or to take what what the Pope is saying here." And the response that I saw from a lot of faithful uh, Catholics yesterday was basically one of trying to withhold judgment to try to get more clarity because obviously this was being reported based on comments he had uh, he had made in this documentary or film. And so they they just wanted to get more 
clarity based on what direction the, the Pope is actually trying to lead the church to endorse in terms of an official position. And so, you know, it, it is one where we would withhold judgment, I guess, because we we know what the Word of God says. We know what we uh, as as Christians believe and even, I mean, certainly what, what Catholics affirm about marriage. And so it is, it's puzzling and potentially troubling, but it's one of those things that what we really want is more clarity. Well, and this is a good reminder for us um, as Christians to check where we look to for our authority on these matters. So are we looking to the culture? Are we looking to, are we listening to our own hearts or our own feelings, which can be misguided? Or are we looking to the authority of scripture? And SBC President J.D. Greer a friend, and the real deal, he said, no matter what a pope, pastor, or elected official says, we do not get to define sexuality or the family. Uh, He went on to say, the creator does, and on this, his word could not be more clear. And again, his word and the way that he defines sexuality and the family is the most loving thing. And it's what makes for our flourishing, whether in our fallen nature we feel that or not, or believe that or not, that is what is absolutely true. Yeah, that that was definitely a a good word from uh, Pastor Greer. So, all right, moving on to back to coronavirus. So this was uh, interesting news that uh, came out of Deseret News. Brain fog. Brain fog. Uh, that is that is a new term in uh, this pandemic that I had not come across. Brain fog is a new symptom that has been seen in recovered COVID-19 patients. A doctor who is a neurologist at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, told a local news station that she has spoken with several patients about the condition in which people suffer from severe headaches and memory loss. Quote, oftentimes these patients may have even recovered from the initial fever and shortness of breath symptoms, and they continue to have very severe headaches and tend to often complain about memory loss, often referred to as a brain fog. The symptoms are similar to what people see during a concussion, she said. So one uh, individual that uh, is a close personal friend of mine who uh, dealt with COVID-19, uh, I, don't, I don't know if, if he would describe what he went through as exactly brain fog, but he definitely had severe headaches, so much so that uh, my wife Meredith and I were, were specifically praying for the, the Lord to relieve him of the effects of this very bad headache. Uh, that he had for for days on end, and uh, I'll be interested now that I've kind of read this uh, to to go back to my friend and say, "Hey, do you you think you've been experiencing uh, brain fog uh, as as you were dealing with this?" Yeah, there's always something new that seems to be uncovered about coronavirus, whether it's a new symptom or uh, something that you're going to talk about in just a minute because I'm privy to the notes here <laughs> on <laughs> your culture rundown, Brent, uh, or whether it's something that we thought was true and wasn't. But it's findings like this are the reason I am such a proponent of uh, living your life but being cautious and wise and living for the good of other people by wearing your masks and washing your hands and all of that because even if somebody survives covid Sometimes we've seen that getting over it is hard. It's a it's an uphill climb and it lasts a long time and you just never know who's going to be affected by it. And I've said that over and over and over again, but it's so true and I don't want to 
I don't want to lead someone to have to deal with brain fog. I have enough brain fog just from being in quarantine. <laughs> so <laughs> I've got I've got enough brain frog brain frog. See brain frog. <laughs> you have yeah, frogs maybe, in your brain yeah, as well. <laughs> maybe even maybe brain frog. But I've got enough brain fog uh, just because of my my three young kids. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> There's a permanent state of brain fog, and that's called being a parent. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Well, actually, just uh, taking off of what you said, still learning so much about this virus. So, y- you know, if uh, if you're like me, the early days of of COVID nineteen, when you just didn't really know what was what, uh, I remember going to the grocery store, coming back home, and like setting things down on the floor, wiping down everything with like a Clorox wipe. Uh, well, Wired Magazine this week uh, has a story about revisiting. COVID-19 and surfaces. It's it's actually a pretty long, thorough report. In the story, they link to a number of different studies about surfaces. And this is something that is certainly on the mind of a number of pastors and church staff as they want to safely reopen. But basically, the long and short of it uh, is we need to continue to take precautions, be sensible. Uh, but at the same time, we don't have to necessarily worry about um, bringing home items from the grocery store. Uh, instead, we need to just make sure of uh, if if we know that we're in an area where there's a high probability of folks that uh, may have the virus, be sensible in terms of wiping things down there. Uh, but things that are outside, things that are exposed to sunlight, probably in the clear there. So I thought that was a really good development. And we needed a good development because Axios is telling us that this week, New York reported the most coronaviruses since May. New York reported over 2,000 positive coronavirus cases on Wednesday of this week, the most infections seen in the state since uh, May. So this is still very much out there. Uh, As colder weather gets in, a lot of analysts and scientists are saying, hey, we're we're beginning to enter a, a very hard season for COVID-19. Uh, please, folks, uh, be on the lookout, be safe, be sensible, be cautious, as, as Lindsay just wisely said, uh, to make sure that we uh, we get through this season uh, in the best shape possible. All right, back in Baptist Life, Baptist Press is reporting that NAM, the North American Mission Board, is going to emphasize Hispanic church planning in the coming year, 2021. Over the course of the next decade, demographic projections estimate that the Hispanic population will increase by 30%, up from the 2016 figure of 57 million to 74 million people by 2030. In recognizing these demographic shifts, the North American Mission Board will emphasize Hispanic church planning beginning in 2021. I thought this was this was great. I mean, once again, uh, NAM is is kind of being light on its toes and and wanting to make sure and be responsive uh, to to the ways that church planning uh, can be encouraged and grow uh, and be responsive to different communities that are out there around the country. Yeah, I mean that's been one of the really encouraging things that we've seen in SBC life in the last number of years is just their our focus and the focus of the North American Mission Board on not only planting churches, but also uh, planting churches to reach uh, demographics that the Southern Baptist Convention has typically had a more difficult time ministering to. And so that includes a focus on Hispanic church plants and also African-American churches. And I'm just encouraged by this continued positive trajectory. Absolutely. All right. On the little bit of a lighter side, so the New York Times had this fascinating story this week, essentially about how a black hole in space eats. 
Astronomers call it the spaghettification of a star, and it's not a pretty idea. From the New York Times, it says, it's what happens when you venture too close to a black hole and fall in. Tidal forces stretch you and break you like a noodle. Then your shreds circle the black hole until they collide and knock each other in. On the upside, the energy released by your long fall and the crashing together of what used to be your atoms might produce a flash, a cosmic funeral pyre, if you will. That can be seen across the universe. So I'm going to talk about space in uh, in my lunchroom segment, but I thought this was just so absolutely neat because black holes are just something we don't really know that much about. Well, I mentioned at the top of the show that Brent is, you know, into Christmas, and that's that's a weird thing about you is not heat, but Christmas. And this obsession with space is also another just interesting uh, eccentricity of Brent Leatherwood. So thanks for sharing that with us. You're welcome. Well, all right. And my, my, the wild ride with Brent uh, concludes where it usually should with baseball. So the World Series began this week after two really epic championship series in both the American League and the National League. The Dodgers, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers, who beat my beloved Atlanta Braves, it still hurts to really talk about it, are facing off against the Tampa Bay Rays for the World Championship in Major League baseball. And I, I for one, am just so encouraged that we are uh, coming down the stretch run here of the Major League Baseball season. I was very skeptical that we would actually be able to get through uh, the baseball season. And, uh, and we're almost there. And that's, that's a good thing for America. Well, here, as of our recording, it's they played two games, and that's been fun to see. Uh, I've actually been watching it with family that we have in town. But my favorite part of watching is actually finding out what the players' nicknames are. So the the pitcher at the beginning for the Rays, his nickname is Baby Giraffe. Would, would you feel validated if your nickname was Baby Giraffe? <laughs> <laughs> oh, me. All right. Well, so that's, that's how we're wrapping it up. Brain fog, black holes, and baseball. So with that, Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to our friend, Jennifer Marshall Patterson. She is the director of the Institute for Theology and Public Life at Reformed Theological Seminary, or RTS, in Washington, D.C., and she is also a senior visiting fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast, and we're excited to have you. As we're getting started, would you tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do? And while you're at it, could you tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season? Well, thank you, Josh, and it's great to be with you guys. I appreciate this invitation. I have been living and working in Washington, D.C. for 25 years, with the exception of one year that I spent overseas uh, teaching at a classical Christian school in France. But for the last quarter century, I've been here in Washington, D.C. That was after growing up in Wheaton, Illinois, and we spent some years on the mission field as uh, when I was five to seven, age five to seven. My dad was a medical missionary, and we lived in Taiwan. Uh, so really wonderful uh, to have those experiences as a young child and to grow up in a Christian home and 
uh, have the opportunity to attend Wheaton College. I came out to Washington, D.C., thinking that I was going to be here for a 10-week internship, and I've ended up here 25 years plus later. So a little different than uh, I thought the plan was going to be, and that's been the situation of my life as well with regard to marriage. I always looked forward to marriage and motherhood, and I yet only got married two years ago, and I married a widower with two teen children, and so I'm also a step-parent, and God has brought a lot of change in this season. I have been working in public policy during my time in Washington, D.C., and recently stepped down from full-time work at that to finish up my Ph.D. at the Catholic University of America in moral theology and ethics, and I'm right at the beginning of my dissertation phase with that. I'm also teaching and directing the Institute for Theology and Public Life at Reformed Theological Seminary here in Washington. So uh, just a lot of uh, opportunities that are great for reflecting on the intersection of of, uh, theology and public life. And as to your question about one thing that God is teaching me in this season, I'm at the stage of embarking on my dissertation, and it's a very humbling experience I'm reminded all the time that you don't know what you don't know, which is also a good lesson for other parts of life. I think uh, just remembering to be a good listener, be a good reader, a close reader of scripture, good listener to the people around us. Um, that's, that's a learning experience and a, a good and humbling opportunity. Well, Jennifer, yes, that lesson is so helpful. And it was interesting to hear these little tidbits about your life that I didn't know about, living in France and your father being a medical missionary. It's always fascinating to hear how the Lord does not work as we planned, but that His plans are always better. So, indeed. Yeah, we're just thankful for the ways that He's working in your life. So this podcast focuses on Christians and culture, and there's definitely no shortage of uh, talking points in our current cultural climate. So can you tell us what things in culture that you and those around you have been paying closer attention to right now? Well, this is the time of year when I turn my attention to an event that we've held at the Heritage Foundation for about the last 10 years. And it's Uh, we call it the Anti-Poverty Forum, looking at questions of uh, poverty and community challenges that face uh, the United States. And so it's an opportunity for me to look more deeply at what's going on, both in policy as well as in efforts at the community level to overcome challenges, uh, help people pursue their uh, aspirations, their dignity, and to overcome poverty and other social challenges. So right at this time of year, I'm particularly focused on uh, looking at those issues. And after this very challenging year in so many ways, pandemic and protest and so many challenges that the world has faced, that our country has faced, We are uh, looking at the principles and the practices that can help communities move forward together uh, to overcome poverty, to overcome the challenges they're facing. And so I have the opportunity to interact with people like John Ponder, who runs the ministry Hope for Prisoners in Las Vegas and is is now um, helping others across the country start similar things, helping those previously incarcerated to uh, 
be able to uh, restart their lives and to have mentoring to do that, and often the engagement of law enforcement in that mentoring process. So a ministry of reconciliation and a ministry of hope, as the title says. Uh, the Anti-Poverty Forum that we've hosted at the Heritage Foundation for the last decade gives us an opportunity to talk about uh, our great examples in our culture like that that are working uh, to, to move forward. Jennifer, that's that's great. And actually, that speaks to the various roles that you've had at the Heritage Foundation. You've served in a number of management roles there, and you also now direct the Institute of Theology and Public Life at Reform Theological Seminary there in D.C. So can you share with our audience some key leadership lessons that you've learned over the last few years? Well, it's a great joy and privilege to work with a team and to work with individuals as they apply their gifts towards their calling, towards the pursuit of a cause and a mission, and to help them in that, to remove obstacles, to figure out how to solve challenges, uh, help them see their gifts and how they can be furthered. It's a real joy and privilege to be able to do that. And part of that, I think, is the opportunity to strategize and identify where what are the missing pieces how can we make this work go further how can how can we apply our gifts best to the challenge at hand much of that goes to accurately diagnosing the challenge and with the culture changing so quickly around us on issues related to what it means to be human and understanding of marriage and sexuality and things like these. Understanding and defining well what's happening is a large part of that challenge. So I think that strategic element is important to the leadership role. And as well, bringing together all those who are working towards a cause to work together to the greatest extent possible. Coalition building and consensus building, I think, is an important part of the, the role of a leader. And then finally, having expectations that are uh, rigorous and high for uh, oneself and, and for the team as a whole, being accountable and uh, pursuing with excellence the tasks that are set before us for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of God. Yeah, thank you for those lessons, Jennifer, and uh, you've certainly lived those out as we've, as we've watched you in your different roles. So living in D.C. over the last 25 years, I'm sure that you are no stranger to the focus on politics leading up to the election. But as Christians, we know that our role as citizens doesn't begin and end on election day. So do you have any advice for Christians as they think about engaging the public square after November 3rd? There is such a temptation, I think, in the world of 24-7 cable news and just massive information flow that goes on around us to be tempted to look at politics as a spectator sport with all that goes with that, you know, the dynamics of us versus them and a sense of uh, being distanced from it and not really engaged and just watching it unfold. And that's particularly true in an election season, perhaps particularly true in this year of 2020. So, it's important, I think, that we realize in season and out that politics, government, is just one of the ways that we think about how to organize to together, organize life together in a political community. It's not the only way, but it's an important way uh, that we answer the question, what's worth pursuing as a, as a society? What problems do we need to solve? So the political, the elections, 
legislative process, legal process, judicial, and so on. They're one avenue through which we address these questions, but not the only way. And the government is interacting with other arenas in society, uh, how we approach life in the family, in the church, in business, in all the many activities of civil society. These are also places that we deal with questions about how are we going to live together in community? What do we want to aspire to? What do we want to rule out as something that is not good and we, 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 should, we should not be pursuing that? These are, all, these are questions that we wrestle with in all these arenas of life. And I think it's critically important for us to remember our roles and our various callings across those domains so that our personal life in the family, uh, the way we engage in our church, the way we engage in our workplace, our contributions to thinking about uh, our overall life as a community and important ways that we answer uh, problems and challenges that we face uh, as a society. That means that how our church, how a church goes about mercy ministry, how it welcomes those who are visiting, how it lives in community with its neighbors, all those are ways that questions in society get answered. And we can, we should invest ourselves in those to, uh, to find answers for society. Those are part of answering questions and challenges that are facing society. So as we see our culture really wrestling with questions of what it means to be human, what's the nature and purpose of uh, a person, these are the kinds of questions in particular that uh, the church, um, that that ministries can help our communities reflect on in a deeper way, in a fuller way, in a way that is true to the testimony of what scripture tells us about being made in the image of God. So there's a lot of contribution that individuals can make by their leadership in their family, by their contribution to their church, by their conduct in the workplace, by their engagement in so many other activities in life, as well as engaging as citizens in the political process. All of these are parts of answering the great challenges of our day and a Christian worldview brings a light, uh, particularly in our, in our era, I think, as to what it means to be human and uh, those questions that are being asked, the longings of the human heart for things that are eluding much of our political discourse today. Christian uh, worldview has a lot to teach about those. I like that. Uh, I like that a lot, Jennifer. And another thing I liked in, in your response is you talked about these kind of issues that that we wrestle with. And uh, look, there's a number of folks uh, in in our audience that are wrestling with different things as it relates to kind of a, a season of singleness. And so you wrote a book titled "Now and Not Yet: Making Sense of Single Life in the 21st Century." Well, now you're married. Uh, what lessons in singleness are particularly poignant to you now that you are in a different season? Well, I appreciate that question. And I think uh, it was the fact that I had housemates as a single person was good practice and preparation for uh, married life, living in a family. And being in, that means being intentional about community, even when it's not the most convenient thing or, you know, you'd rather do it your way, there, there's a give and take to a household life. The other interesting thing about um, 
married life is, as I said, I'm married a widower. And uh, our experiences of single life had been different. So I had been single my entire uh, adult life. He had been married previously since college and then single for several years as a widower before I met him. That puts a different perspective on the experience of singleness. And particularly as we're all aging and we'll have different experiences as we go through life and the realities of singleness are are different at different stages of life. This has been a good uh, reminder to me of thinking about the, the seasons of life as they change. And really what I was trying to get across in my book, Now and Not Yet, was the fact that seasons do change. And in unexpected ways that we cannot control. Our way of making sense of that is to pursue our highest call to glorify and enjoy God here and now in the season to which he's called us, the circumstances in which he's placed us, and continue to have those desires and longing of the heart for something more when it is his uh, good will to to grant that to us, um, or to maintain that that sense of longing if it isn't something that's going to come along. So a recognition of how to live contentedly and with a sense of fullness of life, even when there's uh, uh, an experience of longing for something more, that tension is going to be experienced in different ways at different seasons of life. But it's an almost perennial I think, experience of, of uh, how we go through life. And as things change around us, we have a longing that's unmet. How are we going to deal with that? And I, I think scripture gives us the resources for that. I was really trying to mine those resources, apply it to single life, but really it applies to all the seasons of our lives and all the changes. And particularly in this pandemic year where no one could have expected the way the ways that our lives would change, that's an important Uh, message from scripture for us. Gosh, Jennifer, we want to say thanks so much for joining us today. And you bring such a distinctly Christian approach to each of those topics and areas. And so we're, we're grateful for you and for your partnership with us at the RLC. And we just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week. So tell us what's on your mind. Okay, so two things. First off, I wanted to make sure to highlight that our guest from last week and Benjamin Watson and his wife, Kirsten, they just started a parenting podcast, which if you listen last week, you know that they have seven kids, which includes twins at the at the very end there. And so I think they are probably qualified to be talking a little bit about parenting right now. So they discuss things like election season with your kids, pregnancy and newborns, keeping the spark in your love story. It just began. So there's only a couple episodes, but uh, I would encourage you to listen to it and to glean from their wisdom. They're just such a solid couple. I'm so encouraged that the Lord has raised up their voices as believers here in the midst of our society. And then this other one, that I have is just something funny. My husband is involved in the music industry and songs and songwriting. And his brother, who is actually 18 years younger than him, is a songwriter. And so anytime they get together, they talk about songs and different things like that. Well, the other day, his brother was sharing this song that I, it's from 2018. I had no idea. It was a country song that was actually a joke, but it became popular. 
And this guy who was on The Voice was like, let's write a song that just says the same thing over and over again. So have y'all heard this? It's called Parked Out by the Lake. It's hilarious. This is what it, this is what the song says. I'm still parked out by the lake, 80 miles from Santa Fe, and I'm sitting here just parked out by the lake. If you're wondering where I parked, I'm out parked by the lake. It's the lake that's 80 miles from Santa Fe. (laughs) And then the chorus is, and I'm parked out by the lake, 80 miles from Santa Fe. It's the lake that's parked where I'm out, where I'm at, out by the lake. And this lake is where I'm parked, 80 miles from Santa Fe. And I'm still parked out here by this lake, 80 miles from Santa Fe. (laughs) It has a Dr. Seussian uh, kind of vibe to it. It is hilarious. Uh, And then breaking news, Megan said via, uh, what's this called? That you text, (laughs) via text. (laughs) Brain frog. Yeah, brain frog. That Bobby Bones, the syndicated country radio personality, had him on his show and then he became famous. So it cracks me up. You should go listen to the song because it's hilarious. That's a quintessential lunchroom. I mean, that is the definition of a totally useless topic of conversation. So thanks for bringing that into our you lives. And for our- <laughs> I bet what you're talking about is useless too, Josh. So You know, I, I'll take the blame. I mean, last week I did talk about real lightsabers, but this week I'm going to talk about something that I actually think is really great. So TGC published a, uh, and, and really great and really helpful, TGC published a piece uh, by a church planter named Cameron Triggs. Uh, I think he's a church planter down in Florida, and the piece was called The Ballot Booth is Not Your Baptism. And it was one of, I mean, there have been a series of uh really helpful articles related to the election, think about voting. And this one in particular, I found to be just really, really helpful because this is a topic of conversation among so many Christians. And so uh, just kind of talking you through a couple of the the headings here. I mean, the first thing he says is you're likely not an expert. So it's interesting that we get into such like vehement debates about politics with relatives and friends and even strangers and we should all have enough humility to acknowledge that we don't know we we don't know everything and few of us are are actually really really studied in or experienced in the world of politics and then he also points out that no no candidate is perfect all of us are wrestling with imperfect decisions and imperfect people trying to make the best decisions that we can he reminds us that neither party is the christian party which i think sometimes we tend to forget he talks about the fact that politicians don't always keep their promises. But most importantly, he talks about the fact that it is not an issue for the church, that we have a, a diversity of political opinions and views in the body of Christ. That That is in no way a sign that the church is weak or that something is wrong with our understanding of the gospel. And so I would encourage you to read this uh, as you're thinking through it, because one of the most important things that, or one of the main things that I'm praying for coming out of election season is for a sense of unity in the church, not just not just in the church broadly, but even in our own local churches, that we would experience uh, real unity, regardless of the outcome of the election or who it was that you happened to vote for. It's a word to the wise, man. All right, so for my lunchroom segment this week, I'm talking about asteroids. Take us to outer space, Brent. I We're going. We're going where no man has gone before. We're talking about asteroids, the Orionids, and space with my daughters. Okay, so... There was a a true uh, scientific achievement that took place this week uh, by NASA. A NASA spacecraft unfurled its robotic arm on Tuesday, and at a first for the agency, briefly touched an asteroid to collect dust and pebbles 
from the surface of it to be delivered back to Earth in 2023. The well-preserved ancient asteroid known as Bennu is currently more than 200 million miles from Earth, and it offers scientists a window into the early solar system. So uh, obviously that's just fascinating. We're, we're actually able to do uh, what those movies about, what one was what Deep Impact and the other was uh, Bruce Willis. Was it Armageddon? Armageddon. Armageddon. Yeah, that's right. Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, they're going to save us. Uh, but they, you know, in the movie, they, they touch down ships onto the surface of an asteroid. And well, here we are actually doing it. We just don't have... Ben Affleck, because he's not busy playing Batman anymore. He was the worst Batman, by the way. All right. Then, moving on. Yeah, it is. Uh, Then the other thing I mentioned, so the Orionids. So this is the name of the uh, shooting stars that occur uh, each year around this time of the year. And so uh, this week, my daughter came home and she's like, hey, my teacher started talking about this and I had no idea about it. So I hopped online and started looking for it. And I said, well... If your teacher wants you to really see it, we're going to have to wake up really early the next morning uh, because that's when it will be at its peak. My other daughter overheard us and they both are like, wake us up. We want to see it. So I feel like I win kind of like dad of the month award because I woke up my kids early, 445 in the morning. We went outside. I, I put big blankets on them and um, we went out on our, our back deck and looked up into the sky. And lo and behold, we saw we saw Mars. Saturn, Jupiter, not necessarily in that order. Uh, and we saw uh, a couple of satellites. And then we saw these these comets. And honestly, it was just, it was probably one of the best mornings uh, that I've had as a dad. We just made some sweet memories just talking about space. And uh, they thought it was so cool. So there you go. That's That's my lunchroom segment for the week. I'm sure they'll remember that for a long time too. Did you see anything get spaghettified? No, I, I really wanted to see something get spaghettified, but apparently you need like a very powerful telescope to see something get uh, spaghettified. But hey, that's a life goal, right? Yeah, I told uh, Brent when he was sharing this experience with me that he had basically checked the box for all of the dad goals for a month. And honestly, Brent, it might be more than a month. I mean, that is, you, you banked up some serious capital in your I'm a good dad column. So just want to commend you for that. Sounds really awesome. Thank you for that affirmation, Joshua. Absolutely, man. (laughs) So that's going to do it for the show this week. Just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things that we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks so much for listening. And for Brent, Lindsay, and myself, we will be back next week with more content.